2: Hello, hello, and welcome to Food Network Obsessed. This is the podcast where we dish on all things Food Network with your favorite Food Network stars. I'm your host, Jamie Sire, and today we have an executive director and producer on the show to talk about the many layers of his career and the legacy of the one and only Julia Child. He is the executive director of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts and executive producer of Food Network's The Julia Child Challenge. It's Todd Shulkin. Todd, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to have you on the pod today. I have to start with this question because I think it's a a really cool fact about you. Is it true you helped discover Christopher Nolan?
3: That is true. Helped, I think, would be the word. Yes, I was his uh, first agent. One of my first jobs was as a literary agent. And at the time, film and television were very segregated in that way. So I was a film agent and I represented Chris when he did Following and I sold Memento. Which was kind of easy because his best friend, who's a now very accomplished producer, Aaron Ryder, already had it set up, but they didn't tell me that. So they auditioned me. (laughs) I had this whole list. And I did actually uh, shop it, thinking no one would understand a movie that goes forward and backwards. But um, yeah, it was a great experience.
2: Yeah, well, I love Memento. That's definitely one of my favorite movies, but uh, definitely a cool fact. And I think a good introduction into you as a person, because I feel like you've, you've worn many hats over the course of your career. One of them involves Food Network. Lately, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But, you know, you mentioned you were a literary agent. You were also a marketing executive. And currently, you are the executive director of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and Culinary Arts. So before we dive into the details, what would you say is the overarching theme when it comes to your winding career path? <laughs>
3: That's exactly it. I always say I would I would not exactly recommend my career path to anyone. I've started over several <laughs> times, but I think there's a couple of things that are overarching. What, one is that I love content and I love working with content creators. And I've done that in many different ways. And even when I worked in marketing, I worked at advertising agencies and that involved how you sell things through content and communication. So that's the kind of thing that joins everything together. And that that's still my passion. But I also really like the kind of combination of business and art and have always been someone mm-hmm. who was good at sitting at that intersection.
2: I mean, speaking of which, you have a degree from Brown, you have an MBA from London Business School. What experiences did you have leading up to college that kind of pulled you in that direction initially of becoming a businessman?
3: I don't think I ever intended to become a businessman. <laughs> I went to Brown because it was the best school I went into. And my dad went there and he was very encouraging. And I actually, I started university in 1989. It was when Japan was kind of the big economic superpower. And so I was taking Japanese and thought I would do like internationals, something or other. And that's where I actually discovered architecture. Well, I'd always been interested in it, but I didn't Take it seriously as a career and then i switched to that and and did a lot of sort of design in the environment kind of things and majored in urban studies and then the reason i went to business school i was very much an atypical business school candidate i decided i wasn't quite sure i was an architectural prodigy and architecture is a very difficult <laughs> profession in reality mm-hmm. versus what you see on tv And I ended up working for a developer and I realized that developers tend to call most of the shots. And even in terms of design, they hire the architect, they tell the Mm. architect what they want. And the guy who I worked for had gone to business school and he'd gone to um, Yale, which has a kind of different program at the time. It wasn't even called an MBA. And that's what I intended to do. I intended to go to business school and kind of work in property development, maybe with a social impact component. But- The woman I worked for in D.C., I'll give a shout out to Marilyn Melconian and TELUS Corporation. She had devoted most of her career to real estate, but she'd worked for Lucasfilms as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And so she had these different Hollywood contacts. And that's how I kind of got this idea of like, well, maybe I'm not ready to go to business school. Why don't I just go to Hollywood and check things out?
2: So, what was your first job then out of school?
3: Well, that was my first job out of school working for her for two years. I worked for this a low-income housing property development company. And they had I, I did something incredibly specific for them. They helped implement the housing settlements from desegregation lawsuits. And so it was wow. a really specific. It's totally fascinating. And I did that, but then I just got this idea of wanting to work and be involved with content. And I really had no grand aspiration. But I had some connections. So I moved to Hollywood like the week of the OJ trial. And, oh, my gosh. And uh, that was how I got there.
2: How did you actually like make that career shift?
3: I just networked. I had actually when I graduated from Brown, it was 1993 and it was a pretty bad recession. It was very difficult to get a paying job out of college, even with a great degree. And I had networked to get that job in D.C. It took me almost a, not, not a year. It seemed like a year. It's probably the whole summer. And then I so I did the thing, same thing when I got to Hollywood. And maybe the dirty secret is it's not that hard to become an assistant in Hollywood because they churn mm-hmm. through them. But at the same time, that's still the <laughs> main training ground. So I got a job with kind of a limited amount of networking as an assistant at an agency having no intention of being an agent, just being advised that that's a great Mm -hmm. way to get a broad perspective on on the landscape of Hollywood. And then it ended up being a good fit for me.
2: When it comes to navigating all these career choices, do you tend to lead with your head or your heart?
3: I don't actually know the answer to that, but I think I have to say heart because if there's uh-huh. no good head logic to it,
2: <laughs> that's fair. Um, I, I guess that leads me to, to my next question. I mean, when when this opportunity for the position with the Julia Child Foundation came along, what about this organization compelled you to
3: become part of it? The short answer is it it stitched together all these different things I'd done and that was what was mm-hmm. attractive t- about it and I remember so Susie Davidson who um had actually worked for my mother-in-law years ago and that's how she met Julia I can visualize still she I was living in Los Angeles then and she called me up and said I need some help things are expanding with the foundation it's kind of out of my expertise you know you know some of this stuff what do you think and I was kind of like I think it's kind of the perfect job for me in that the needs of the foundation are someone who understands content and intellectual property and intellectual property rights, which I learned from being an agent and a manager, and then also um, understands marketing communications. And then the, the additional prong is, you know, having an understanding of the food world.
2: How much was food and cooking or even Julia Child part of your life growing up?
3: Growing up, not very much. I am embarrassed to say that I was not someone who watched Julia all the time on television as a kid. My parents are wonderful people, but they are not food people. It is low on their <laughs> priority. My mom finds cooking stressful, although she still does it. So <laughs> it does it as well as ever. But I basically married into a food family. And my mother-in-law okay. ran a, a well-known cooking school called La Varenne in Paris that trained a lot of Americans, actually. And that was really my introduction and and training. And that was how I had met Julia, because Julia was my mother-in-law's mentor, as she was to many people, but they were actually very close. And when I went to Hollywood, uh, Julia was relocated to Santa Barbara, And my mother-in-law said to us, like, can you look after Julia and go see her and visit her? And, of course, (laughs) now I realize how silly that was because Julia knew so many people and was so well looked after. But it was her way of staying connected. And I can still remember the first time Julia left a message on our answering machine. And I walked into the apartment and played the answering machine. And there was Julia Traveld saying, hello! Wow. (laughs)
2: <laughs> do you still I do you still have that? Probably not, but no, I mean, that would be amazing. There are so
3: many things like that, that I wish I kept.
2: What was your first impression of Julia when you met her?
3: It's that characteristic that people talk about that she, you know, I opened the door and she called me by name. And I was like, Oh my God, Julia Child knows my name. <laughs> and my wife whispered, Yeah, because someone just told her five minutes before you walked in. But it was still this genuine. Ability that she had to immediately connect with people because she was generally interested in people.
2: I mean, and now you have this very important task and honor of really enriching and extending Julia Child's legacy. How can you describe her influence as an icon on the landscape of food media today?
3: Yeah, I feel very honored to be in this position because I think it's fascinating. And as we'll talk about later with the show, it's amazing how much her legacy has endured. And I think. It's kind of got two parts to it. One part of the legacy enduring is that she was one of the first people to kind of sound this clarion call that we really needed to to check our values and that cooking matters and knowing how to do it and understanding where food comes from and questioning how it should be made and how it's good for you are really important values that were starting to be lost and i i kind of feel like the pandemic just proved julia right all over again and then i think the other part that again that we'll talk about with the show really explores is how her own story and the unusual path she took is really inspiring and particularly empowering to people that she accomplished all these things that if you put it on paper you wouldn't have expected from her and and people just for very good reasons, find that endlessly inspiring. And I do, too.
2: Yeah. I mean, why do you think that she has had the staying power like long after, you know, she passed? Is it her personality or like you said, some of these things that she was kind of ahead of her time on in, in terms of cooking and encouraging people to do that at home?
3: Well, I think some of it's her joie de vivre and that she just had so much joy for what she did. And it was genuine joy and passion And I think part of it also is her being a teacher, that the joy that she put into that, she really wanted people to not just learn things, but like share her own experiences. So I think that that's a big part of it. Also, she was so authentic. And I think that gets, you know, if you go back to my marketing hat, in marketing (laughs) circles, the big thing you want is for brands to be authentic and to be associated with authentic things. But she was just naturally authentic and human beings are just naturally drawn to that. And I think that for whatever reason, even that authenticity on camera just is there. And and that w- what makes her kind of endlessly appealing.
2: Yeah. You start to think about, you know, watching her. And I, I just watched, you know, the the 2021 documentary. And she just seems like a person that you wanted to be around. Did you feel that way, you know, in your time knowing her?
3: Oh, absolutely. She was always a joy to be around. And when I knew her, you know, she was quite old. I mean, she mm-hmm. was already well into her 80s. And that was sort of the period. It was her, I guess, mid to late 80s. And it, up until the time she died, but she was still I mean, she was just a lovely person. And again, it was back to like she was really interested in other people, not just herself. In fact, she really didn't like to talk about herself.
2: Well, each year the foundation awards the Julia Child Award to an individual or team that has you know, really made a profound and significant difference in the way that America cooks, eats, drinks. When you think of past and maybe future recipients of this award, what do you think that they all have in common?
3: Well, the foundation designed the award to really recognize people following in Julia's footsteps. And while that can be in very different ways, because it's not a chef award, it's meant to cover all different facets of the the food world. But the common thing is people who have excelled at what they're doing in the food world, but also people who are doing the things that Julia did, mentoring others, even without taking public credit for it. And having an impact and people who want to take the platform that they've been they've worked hard for but now have the privilege of having and use it for going above and beyond to make the world a better place through the lens of food and that's what the award is designed to do and you know i think we're we just passed seventh or eighth year all of the recipients share those categories those characteristics Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, for example, Chef Jose Andres was one of the recipients and obviously what he's done with World Central Kitchen, which at the time was just starting to take off. Mm -hmm. And then since he received the award, it just really validates, you know, he's the kind of person doing who's an amazing chef, really appreciates food, has those same qualities of authenticity and passion that Julia did and is now, you know, really devoting his life to this platform he's established to help other people with food.
2: I know that there's always been this interest in Julia and her story um, in the entertainment world, I think, obviously leading up to her passing, but also especially since then in 2004, you know, you had the Julie and Julia book that was turned into a movie with Meryl Streep, the the documentary Julia, which I mentioned that came out last year. And now we have a scripted series on HBO Max by that same name that premieres on March 31st. And speaking of all of your hats, you are also a consulting producer on that project. So what kind of responsibilities does that role entail for you?
3: Well, I think the consulting producer can mean many things, but in, in my circumstance, I was kind of a bookend producer because okay. I was very involved at the beginning of pitching the pitching and conceiving the idea of the show. I worked with a uh, actually someone I knew from when I w- we were agents together back in the day, um, and she at the time was a manager at a. Uh, a production and, and management company called Three Arts. And she and I were having lunch and she was like, I love Julia. What can we do about Julia? And I, I was like, well, and pitched her a couple ideas. And so I was really involved and we worked together to bring on the writer who ended up being Daniel Goldfarb and the uh, showrunner, Chris Kaiser. And then, then it was kind of handed off to them for the writers and showrunners to develop the show. They did the pilot. The pilot got picked up. And then I kind of supported what they needed in terms of Julia contacts or it's not a right space show, but there are some things that were incorporated. Mm -hmm. And then again, I put my marketing communications hat back on. So I've worked with HBO Max's uh, marketing team on some of the uh, things they're doing to promote the show, which will include a companion podcast.
2: And it is a scripted show, which I think is, you know, super fun and interesting. I mean, what can we expect from
3: watching it? Well, first of all, it's important to say it is inspired by her life. And it follows the general narrative. But the whole concept behind it was to look at parts of Julia's life that have not been looked at before in detail because her story has so many facets and people get really fascinated by like what was covered in Julia and Julia, her time in France. But the scripted show looks at this intersection of what was it like for Julia personally to become Julia, the TV Mm -hmm. star? And it happens at a really pivotal time in American history. And that's often overlooked again because people get so fascinated with Julia's story. So the idea was like, Let's look at when Julia became a TV star, which is the dawn of public television Mm -hmm. and not the dawn of television, but really when television was starting to peak and become integral in American life, which also happens to be during the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War. And that hadn't ever usually when you see Julia's story, it kind of it's very Julia centric and it doesn't talk about that wider picture on the personal side. It also looks at Julia's relationship with her husband, Paul, which was really important to her career. It was a very magical relationship. And it was also this idea of this flip where up until that point, Julia had really supported Paul's career as a diplomat. And he was 10 years older than her. And he really subjugated himself to make things happen for her. And so that's what the series looks at. But some of it is invented and imagined because there isn't documentation of what she and Paul were discussing in their bedroom late at night.
2: Right. I mean, how how well documented is Julia's life before, you know, her show, The French Chef?
3: I mean, it's pretty well documented. There's at least three biographies about Julia and then there's her own memoir. But I think what is less well documented, I mean, the biographies cover comprehensively her story from start to finish, and particularly if you want to read all three of the major ones, you'll get a pretty complete picture. So the series is really looking at filling in gaps of if you were a fly on the wall, what would you have experienced? And, and particularly more from an emotional point of view, what was it like for Julia to try to become Julia, which isn't, I think, in any existing materials?
2: What ignited her
3: interest in French cuisine? Well, it was, re- I mean, that's covered in part because it really was through Paul Child who took her to France and was much more knowledgeable already about French culture and French food and wine. And she just fell in love with it. And once she sort of had that famous meal in Rouen at La Coronne, of sol she was smitten. And just, I mean, anyone who's had the privilege of going to France and eating in France, the food just tastes better there.
2: <laughs> it does. It does. It's magical. Are there other aspects of her life and perspective that you think should be recognized alongside of this career that we we all know and love?
3: As much as she's a beloved figure, she had her own ups and downs. I mean, to begin with, it took her 10 years to get Mastering the Art published. It it almost didn't happen. You know, she had personal disappointments The most people believe that she did want to have children, but wasn't able to. Um, There's not really anyone who knows the ins and outs, but she made enough comments to show that it it was not a personal choice to not have children. And she and Paul both had a, a series of health problems. Julia had breast cancer early on, relatively early in her life. And Paul had a heart problem that then kind of, it didn't end his life prematurely, but it kind of took him away from Julia's side. and And she had to kind of go it alone after he'd been such, such a rock to her. So I think it's also helpful to understand, you know, she was a human being with struggles like anyone else. But I think one of the things that also makes her a role model is that she dealt with them, she dealt with them privately, and she didn't let them consume her. And she still achieved things in, in her own way and didn't lose hope
2: is also an executive producer on food network's newest show the julia child challenge and he's going to give us a scoop on it when we come back
0: For Memorial Day, get 15% off your borough purchase at burrowcom ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrowcom ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness.
2: As we've been teasing, you are also an executive producer on the new Food Network show, the Julia Child Challenge. So this is where eight home cooks, all Julia Child superfans cook in a kitchen that has been recreated in the likeness of where Julia herself cooked. They're using the same ingredients she used. Plus uh, the grand prize, the contestant who wins this competition gets a life changing experience. To literally follow in her footsteps, and all-expense-paid three-month cooking class at Le Cordon Bleu. Uh, does this project feel like a natural progression of Julia's influence on the modern-day food competition shows?
3: Yes and no. I would say okay. yes because it's you know Julia sort of led the way for what became the modern food show and 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 the ideas behind Food Network. I would say no in that it's kind of back to basics, mm-hmm. so it's not full of. Whiz bang stuff. It's more about how, well, first of all, it's home cook focus. So Mm -hmm. the contestants are not chefs. They're not trained at all. They're all just people who are really into cooking, who've taught themselves. Then they're also been challenged to follow in Julia's footsteps, learn about her life and the dishes that tell her story, but by then also putting themselves into those dishes and showing themselves and their experience through recreating them.
2: And they're they're kind of guided by Julia herself in this like larger than life television screen right in the middle of all the action. How important was it to ensure that her presence, her energy was an equal and integral part of the show?
3: Well, luckily for us on on the foundation side, that was always part of the vision of the showrunners and producers, Blake Davis and Kimberly Carver. So the idea was that always Julia would be front and center. And I think we'd learned from some other things we tried out before that Julia's still an amazing teacher from on television Mm -hmm. and her presence just leaps off. And so I'd like to think of it as she's almost plays this like fairy godmother role. (laughs) I love that. Sounds a little cheesy, but I think it really works. And they've leaned into and I think it just we at the foundation, we talk a lot about the magic of Julia. Whenever we do things, even when there possibility of it going off the rail or we're not too sure, there's this magic Julia brings that just makes everything better.
2: Yeah, I think Fairy Godmother is a, a great, a great description of, of what she can bring to this challenge and just to everybody who watches her. What kind of challenges on the show can we expect?
3: Well, like I said, the way the challenges are structured, they really walk you through key elements of Julia's story, a lot of the things we've been talking about. So each episode is structured on kind of different moments in her life and her story, whether it's the relationship with her husband, Paul, or when she was in the Office of Strategic Services, or when she discovered France. And so the challenges are to make dishes From Julia's life that were important to her, but also with some technical skills. There's filleting fish and Julia giving a demo on that. And then the home cook contestants having to replicate that. There's making uh, souffles and certain structures. So it's a little bit of everything. It's a little bit of Julia's story. It's a little bit of show your classical French techniques and trainings and these things that all cooks should know.
2: And like you said, they are all home cooks but they also have their own personal connection to julia how much did their stories of her impact on their lives resonate with you
3: oh amazingly it was incredibly moving it's very well cast so all of the people have uh interesting backgrounds and have had their own trials and tribulations and i think demonstrated how food was transformative in their lives and that comes through in the show, partly because the challenges are set up to be very personal, and mm. and that they have to you know reveal certain things of themselves through their food, and then get judged based on how well they do that. But I, yeah, there there's some there's some really moving stories, and it was it was a joy to 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 be there to to see it unfold.
2: What do you think Julia's advice to those contestants would be?
3: Well, you'll see she gives the advice in the show, <laughs> but you know, it's very much be true to yourself, try, you might make mistakes, but it's all on how you handle them. So I think I, I also like to think of it. So there's Julia's very godmother. But there's mm-hmm. also this element of Julia's life coach. And that really comes <laughs> through. She really is. She's like, a, you know, all people's interest in Julia's quotes and things like that. She really had all this wisdom that, you know, she was being a life coach before it was a thing.
2: Yeah, I I love that you brought up you might make mistakes because I think that was that was definitely like a through line with her is that, you know, you're not going to get it right every single time. And I'm going to show you like how to fix that if that happens. How important is that aspect of her personality, you know, in terms of kind of allowing this this legacy to live on?
3: Well, I think it's huge because I think that's part of the empowering thing that Julia says. She gives people not just. I think everyone knows you need to make mistakes, but I think she reminds you that it's an important part of learning and that by making them, you learn and you get better and that there's no chef who got to be great by making everything perfectly every time. And I think actually I, I should give um, a shout out to Antonia lafazo who is fantastic as the – she's the head judge, but I – she's also kind of the host. She's certainly Julia's co-host and she was a great sort of mother hen to all the mm-hmm. the home cooks. And I think she and some of the other guest judges talk about the fact that you always make mistakes. And and a lot of, I think what I learned too about cooking and from cooking teachers and chefs is it's not so much about making a mistake. It The best chefs, they know how to fix their mistakes mm-hmm. or make it look like they fixed it. And, yeah. that, and that's, you know, and again, you know, Julia said never apologize. And of course, Julia didn't mean if you did something wrong, you shouldn't apologize. But she meant don't, don't reveal your mistakes. And actually that happens quite a bit in the show where the judges admonish the, the contestants for like right away admitting what they did wrong. And they're <laughs> multiple times the judges are like, why did you say that? This tastes perfectly good. If you hadn't told us you intended something else, yeah. you wouldn't have known. Don't do that. And, that. and that's what Julia said. If you, you fix it and don't let on.
2: Yeah, I love how I just love how, you know, transparent she was always about that. And you mentioned Head Judge Antonio Lafaso, you had the rotating panel of guest judges including Molly Baz, Cliff Crooks, Brooke Williamson. Did you have a chance to to meet and hang out with them on set and if so, like what was their excitement level of being part of this project?
3: Well, I was really lucky because uh, we were able to be on set and I was there for the the whole filming. It was still during, you know, pretty strict COVID protocols. So Mm -hmm. it was wearing an N95 mask and uh, the judges were all face shielded except when they were on camera. But yeah, no, I mean, I got to meet, I'm not sure, I literally, I, I certainly met in sort of a group setting, everybody and had some time and then the other facet of guest judges were people pulled from julia's life julia child award recipient susan Feniger was one of them dory greenspan who did baking with julia who rarely does tv appearances is in the finale so there was this great meeting between the sort of current and new generation and the generation that came before them and i think it just pops on camera
2: Well, we are certainly looking forward to seeing it all, kind of unfurl and and see who is the the winner in in this very unique challenge. And we appreciate you taking the time to chat with us and and kind of tease what we can expect. Uh, We're gonna finish things off with a little rapid fire with you, and then we have one final question that we ask everybody here at the end of Food Network Obsessed. All right, so rapid fire round: favorite Julia Child recipe.
3: I would say cocoa ban.
2: Okay. Favorite Julia quote.
3: People who love to eat are always the best people.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. Fact about Julia, we may not know.
3: Well, this ties into your first question. She loved the movies. And actually, particularly when I knew her was before I was really involved in the food world and just worked in Hollywood. And so when I would see her in Santa Barbara, we would chat about what movies she'd seen. And she was (laughs) going to the movies well into her 90s.
2: I love that. How do you take your coffee or tea?
3: Well, I drink both. So I take my coffee black with a little bit of milk and I drink tea with just plate.
2: How would you rate your own cooking skills on a scale of one to 10?
3: I'd like to say seven.
2: Okay. All right. That's good. That's respectable. Uh, your go to takeout order?
3: I love aromatic duck pancakes, like Chinese food, which is not oh, something. Oh, yes. Yeah. I love the taste, but also like, you know, the kind of construction project of you put the plum sauce, yes. and the carrot, cucumber, <laughs> and the, the scallion, and then and they roll it up. I love that.
2: A little, little buffet. Personal life motto.
3: Well, this comes sort of from maybe having started as an agent, but I would say if you don't ask, you don't get.
2: Answers always no, unless you ask, right? Favorite food network show.
3: 100% diners, drive-ins, and dives. I love, <laughs> I love everything about it and, and admire Guy Fieri.
2: Yeah, I, I think you're not alone in, in that that answer. All right. So our final question, this is the one we ask everybody on the show, and that is what would be on the menu for your perfect food day? So we want to hear your breakfast, your lunch, your dinner, dessert. And there are no rules in this question. So obviously calories don't count. You can travel, time travel, spend absurd amounts of money. It can be served by any chef alive or dead. The floor is yours. What is your perfect food day?
3: Well, it's funny because I think I've gone with what came into my mind first, which was actually quite sort of maybe do it yourself rather than, okay. even though you've given the opportunity to travel the globe and sure. I, I've been fortunate to eat around the world, but I pick things that I think I would make myself. So a bagel and lox, absolutely for mm-hmm. breakfast, always mm-hmm. love it. I love quesadillas, so that would be my lunch. <laughs> I them. Vegetarian, authentic, any which way, love them. I think you can't beat roast chicken for dinner. And um I would probably do that like very traditionally French style. And then for dessert, also very French chocolate mousse. I love chocolate. Okay. And I like actually like my desserts quite simple.
2: All right. Would Julia approve?
3: <laughs> I don't know if she would eat a quesadilla and I don't know if she ate bagels, but I think she'd be good <laughs> she'd be good with the roast chicken and chocolate mousse. I think those were staples to her.
2: Absolutely well it's been such a delight uh, Speaking with you Um, I like so many other people out there You know just infatuated with Julia And her story and just The light that she you know Brings whenever she's on screen So we are looking forward to seeing her On this new Food Network show And best of luck with uh, all of your Different projects you have going on Thank you Such an interesting conversation with Todd honoring the life and legacy of a food icon. Be sure to catch the Julia Child Challenge premiering Monday, March 14th at 9, 8 central on Food Network and streaming on Discovery Plus. Thanks so much for listening and make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a thing. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review. We love it when you do that. That's all for now. We'll catch you foodies next Friday.